Welcome to episode 438 with my guest, Alec McDonald. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by New Chapters Zyflamand Whole Body. It's perfect for anyone seeking inflammation support. It's patented 10-herb blend, which includes turmeric, ginger, rosemary, and green tea, helps balance inflammation while enhancing mobility, flexibility, and joint function. Find New Chapter products like Zyflamand at the Vitamin Shop, Whole Foods, or your local health food store. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. They are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. These are enhancements for non-disease issues. Uh, my name is Paul Gilmartin, and actually before I go any further, uh, today's episode, we got a, uh, an audio chapter from Dr. Ellen Hendrickson, who was uh, a guest and talked about anxiety, and she personally uh, deals with anxiety. And uh, she reads a chapter from her uh, audio book, and the chapter is on social anxiety and making friends, kind of expanding our uh, our support network. And uh, that's going to be after the interview with Alec and uh, and a couple of surveys. Uh, there was something I wanted to say. Oh, <laughs> my name. Paul Gilmartin, uh, this podcast that you find yourself awkwardly sandwiched inside of is uh, the Mental Illness Happy Hour. It's a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. It's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's uh, I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Uh, mentalpod.com is our website. Go there, fill out some surveys. Uh, it's totally anonymous. We don't even get your IP address. So let loose. Share all your deepest, darkest victories and struggles uh, with us. And you can also go to the forum and find some like-minded people. There's a variety of topics and threads. Um, and you can you can find a lot of comfort and, and help there. At the very least, you know, share what's going on with you. And people also share creative stuff. They'll share their poetry or short stories they wrote or pictures they took or drew. So, yeah, check it out, mentalpod.com. And mentalpod, also the social media handles that you can follow. Follow me at. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself the pretender. And describing her depression, she writes, stuck in snow, waist deep, looking through a frosted window, paralyzed, while a perfect family sits around the fire with smiles on their faces, not even noticing me. Oh, my God, that's Hall of Fame. That is Hall of Fame. Thank you for that. So descriptive. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Mother's Perfect Doll. And she writes, This weekend I found out that I was rejected from another job position. I've been job hunting in the San Francisco Bay Area since February. I hate the current job since they keep cutting my hours and barely pay above minimum wage. This current rejection really got to me, though. As I sat there trying not to lose my shit in front of my boyfriend as we watched a movie, my negative self-talk really kicked in. They rejected you because they don't like you. You aren't skilled enough. Congratulations, you are wasting your life away and trying to pursue a career that you can't even get an entry-level job in. 
I slipped into the bathroom, and for the first time in months, I just curled up on the floor crying. I felt so trapped since I needed this new job to help pay for my therapy and other health issues that I can't afford. My mind kept telling me how dumb and broke I am. After a while of crying, I cleaned myself up and curled up next to my boyfriend. He knew something was wrong immediately and kept holding me and kissing me. When it was time for bed, we curled up next to each other and he simply said, talk to me. The way that he said it, without shame or judgment, allowed me to slowly tell him how, bro- how I broke down in the bathroom and how much I hated my life. He held me and told me how amazing I was and kept comforting me. After a while, it dawned on me that this was the first time I opened up to someone and didn't receive any judgment that wasn't a therapist. I laid there, slowly crying, realizing that I'm actually loved and worth it. Thank you. That was really beautiful. It's amazing. We can never, if we don't open up to people in our lives, we never get a chance for them to show their character. And either way, the information that we get back from them is helpful because we'll either go, oh, well, this is a person that clearly uh, I can't have a deep connection with or, wow, this is a person that uh, I can. So there's no, los- there's no losing. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Amisiko too. And about her bulimia, she writes, I feel like I need to be full, yet when I am, I feel the need to be empty. About being a sex crime victim, feels like the only purpose in my life was to be fucked by men slash women, regardless of my wishes. About dealing with her borderline personality disorder, bipolar, and dissociative identity disorder, uh, and hearing voices, and sights. Uh, she writes, not knowing who or where I am, then falling into a pit of despair because you're you. Wow, that is heavy. That is heavy. Thank you for sharing that. I can't, can't imagine what it's like to have all of that stuff on your plate. Um, as I told you guys in the episode last week, uh, I've really enjoyed going on Yelp recently and seeing what people say about large things in our lives. And uh, I found out that there was a couple of reviews of heaven. Uh, This first one is from JT. And they write, I wish I would have planned for Judgment Day. I'm waiting for a final decision about getting in. And I think none of it has to do with any sexual stuff, but a ton about the way I drove. If anyone reads this, when someone lets you in, wave back. Oh, and chain letters don't work. This one is from CC, who writes, I wouldn't say this place is overrated, but I expected angels with wings or people in white robes. There was no gate, but whatever. I will say I've never felt so relaxed. There was the whole tunnel of light deal. It's a little lonely as there isn't anyone around except for an occasional voice that I think might be God. It's so calm and compassionate, but I don't always understand the words it uses, like intubate. I want to tell you guys about a podcast that I was a guest on. It's called the uh, How I Get By podcast, and it covers a topic that uh, is really important, but a lot of times we don't talk about, which is uh, how we get by financially. 
uh, not just what we do for income, but the degree to which we make peace with it, uh, the lifestyle we've chosen around it, and how that becomes a window into how we feel about life, how we feel about ourselves, and how we choose to deal with it. And I was a guest on it. Uh, and I shared about how I made a living before I started the podcast. And, you know, I talked about being a traveling stand-up comic, the co-host of Dinner and a Movie. Uh, even when I was working full-time at uh, the insurance company where my dad worked. But go check out episode 26 of the show. Uh, just look up How I Get By podcast on whatever platform you listen uh, through. Or their website, howigetbypodcast.com. Uh, and... There's all kinds of guests, uh, you know, people with multiple gigs, travelers, entrepreneurs, a uh, real estate agent, a porn actor, a Mormon stay-at-home mom, a traveling bartender, and a really great one, a two-part episode with a woman named Caitlin who lives in Brooklyn and is both a professional dancer and a choreographer and a full-time software engineer at Google, uh, where she plans to work until... Uh, she paid off her college debt. I'm sure there's a lot of people that can relate to that. So uh, to find the show, just search How I Get By. And you might need to add Michael Shaw, who is the host's name, and uh, search it on your platform. And again, the website is howigetbypodcast.com. I think you guys will uh, will dig it. It's it's right up your right up your alley. And as I said before, an important topic. Uh, today's episode is also sponsored by uh, BetterHelp. If you've never tried online therapy, Highly, highly recommend it. I love it. I do video therapy with uh, my therapist every Monday. Same time, same place, my recliner. Love not having to leave the house, and uh, she is beyond qualified and awesome. So uh, if you're interested, go to betterhelp.com slash mental and make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And just fill out a questionnaire, and if they can find a counselor that they feel is a a good match for you, uh, they'll match you with one. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you, and you need to be 18. We'll put the links to everything that that uh, we mention on the on the podcast under the show notes, and then uh, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Hash Browns, and she writes, "I've always thought of myself like a poorly socialized dog. There was some stage of my life, some short window where I was supposed to develop, and I just missed it." I would spend the rest of my life anxious and aggressive, constant fear. I used to think about how dogs that were too poorly socialized or fearful often got put down because no one would want them, and how it would be better for me and everyone around me if it were the same with humans. I eventually adopted a dog with, surprise, a lot of anxiety and aggression tendencies. I often blamed myself for it because how could I teach her to be a social dog if I can't be a social human? I doomed her. If I ever had to give her up, she would be put down immediately. I was filled with so much shame. I never took her anywhere. She was a bad dog because I was a bad owner. I did this to her. Everyone can take one look at my anxious, aggressive dog and knows I'm just as bad. I can't change, so there's no hope for her. When I finally got through to her, when I finally got enough help to handle my anxiety and anger, she finally calmed down. She'll walk right up to strangers, cuddle people she's just met, walk loose on her leash. My friends fawn over how sweet and chill she is. Every day I worked with her, the better she got. I had patience and showed her love, and she grew into the sweet, loving girl I knew she could be. 
I see the sweet, loving old dog that she is now, and I know I can do it. I'm not defective or broken. There's no piece of me that's missing. I can be that sweet and that loving and that content. I can be the person my dog thinks I am. Nobody's Nobody's cool and everyone's scared. scared. And And we're we're just all all in in this together. (laughs) There was no joy. Overeating. Apathy doesn't leave any marks. Numbing out. Physically. I wish that I was a girl. Panic attacks were so violent. Rudderless. They were mistaken for seizures. Shot coke in my neck. The TV was talking to me. Romantically, I am becoming the woman that I feared. He said, there's going to be a second hunger strike. Nothing's real. And I'm going to die. Sometimes I just go, hey, I can't deal. Just beyond broken. I want out. You have to, like, fantasize about the person I'm with. I'm going to stop it. Fucking someone else. It's okay to be different. That I don't want to die is a miracle. To be weird. I'm so happy to be here. I'm going to help you one day. People are going to love you for that. It takes a lot of work to heal. It's hard being a weird kid. Sometimes you don't realize how fucked up something was until you feel the opposite of it. You will just never see what you're not looking for. I didn't know how to break up with him, so I just transferred schools. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Alec McDonald, who uh, many of you know from Instagram as Alec with Pen. You write comics. Uh, Is that what you call them? Comics? Yes. Um, I never know if it's cartoons, comics. Uh, yeah, it's comics. But you, you do panels uh, about mental health stuff, anxiety, depression, and it has just taken off. It is connected, not surprisingly, because your stuff is awesome, it is connected to people in a way that uh, is just so cool. I love I love what you do, Thank and I'm you. really really happy that you're you're here and uh, you popped in to to chat about your crazy. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm I'm happy that I'm here too. As I was telling Paul before we started recording, I'm a big fan. This is uh, very weird. He has a light mustache. <laughs> well, so do I. Yeah, with you know, with a little bit of flavor on the chin. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, guys, picture that. He's also taller than I thought. Um like my dad. <laughs> I'm not That's so funny. Dad. I've never thought of myself as as tall. I'm 5'10", which I Are I, you? Yeah, I think most people would I'm 5'10". Yeah. So you have a taller person. I think we need me. to wrestle. Um <laughs> uh, but where do we start with your story? You're how old? I'm 30. 30. Mm-hmm. And paint a picture of, of what childhood was like for you. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New York City, the Upper West Side of New York City. Um, Wealth? Yeah. Well, yes. Not a yeah. Um, it, it, like my family is definitely rich. Um, but uh, when you're on the Upper West Side, um, there it's are levels to rich. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my dad was an investment banker. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom was an econ professor. They're both econom- uh, economics people. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I went to private high school. Mm-hmm. I had all that I could want from, from on the financial um, end of things. Not so much on the other end. Um, yeah. yeah, so well, that's probably what we'll be talking about. And, and it's such an an important topic. You know, I hate, I hate it if I sound like a broken record, but, you know, one of the things I would love to see when somebody's on the cover of Fortune 500 or Forbes, you know, as a quote-unquote success, is to discuss the emotional success, the familial yeah. success. 
you know, name three best friends of your child. What's their favorite movie? <laughs> Shouldn't that be a part of a successful life? It just life? isn't in this, especially in this country. Um, it's just, yeah, we don't pay any attention to it at all. And I actually have a very hard time. I have to remind myself to pay attention to it. Um, that like, it's your career or whatever, or like the, th- the things you got. Um, isn't your uh, like what your value is? There's right. all this unspoken stuff um, that is 100 percent more important, and uh, we're it's just not in American DNA. Yes. And a concept that blew my mind that somebody introduced to me in recovery is that I'm also not what I do um, outside of my job. I'm I. My value doesn't have to come from anything. I just, that is a, I'm a human being on this yeah. earth and I have value as does every person regardless. That is so hard for me to get through my head. Like I have a hugely difficult time with that. My therapist was, um, he, he asked me like, um, I was talking about how I, I, you know, when I get dark or whatever, I self-loathing, um, et cetera. And I'm always talking about like what I hate about myself or thinking about what I hate about myself or don't like. And then he's like, what do you like about yourself? And all I listed were things I was good at, like, uh, that I could do, right? Like, right. I think I'm funny. I, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, good at sports. Um, I can draw well. I can write well. Like it was all, I, I, you know, like just, all skills. performance. All yeah. performance. Well, and that's, yeah, that's also when I was a kid. I was just like, how many things can I be good at? Um, and, uh, and did that get attention from your parents? It definitely did. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I always had a tr- trouble being like acknowledging that, um, I had like a sort of an emotionally neglectful household because my parents were, you know, like always saying like, you're the best. You, yeah, but, but it was always around things I was doing. Um, right. It was, uh, my dad was this, like, Olympian, um, guy. He was a hurdler. And. Really? Yeah. He's, he, he looms large in my life. He's, he, like, Canadian hurdler, uh, in the 72 Olympics. Um, then, like, a million jobs, like, a history teacher, uh, artist, like, painter. Um, and then finally was like, oh, I'll become an investment banker and make, all this money um is he somebody that requires very little sleep uh, no he needs a lot of sleep he just needs a lot of validation and he'll get it um he's he's like a really smart and talented guy that's what that's clearly um he's uh which is odd because he also he's such an idiot like interpersonally he can be such he's the kind of person that like will lie to you really lazily um Mm -hmm. and so you can tell and you're like i know you're lying and he's like no i'm not and uh, he's also very hard to be mad at. Do you know those people? Like, he kind of seems seems so, like, innocent. Uh, so when he's a dick, there's, like, nothing to hold on to. There's nothing to, like, strike at. Um, that fucked me up. <laughs> the the vague uh, yeah, little inconsistencies, mistruths, the things that yeah. don't necessarily have malice behind them, but mm-hmm. corrode a sense yeah. of trust They're just and like, connection. Also, like, you don't... The way that I interpret it is, like, you don't matter enough for me to lie well. Like, for me to be creative, and uh, which I know he can. <laughs> um, right. Uh, yeah, that, that, that was getting to me. But he was, like, my idol when I was growing up. I mean, he was... He could play every sport. He was amazing. So I was like, okay, my sister's the academic one. I'll be the art sports person. Um, 
And so what were the sports for you? The sports were, well, originally it was, uh, it was hockey, actually. I was a goalie. Um, and, uh, cause he's Canadian, right? So I was like, I'll play hockey, oh, yeah. right? He'll like that. Um, but, uh, you got tired of taking pucks in the neck. Well, I actually, I stayed with goalie. That was what I did. I had to do it because I was small. Um, right. and as I got more and more into it, I took a lot of pucks in the neck. I didn't mind. I like kind of liked that, uh, crook of the elbow. Yeah, uh, it was also the inside of the thigh was the was the yes. one that hurt a lot. Um, and uh, I would, yeah, I played constantly. I I hated it. I hated it so much. That's a brutal, yeah, I position hated to not do passionately. Oh, I know. I mean, I liked being good at it, right? So that's a that's a thing that I'll often confu- get confused. Right. I like being good at things. That's fun for me. Did you mod- um, model yourself after any particular goalie? Richter, yeah, yeah, Mike Richter, of course, New um, York, New York City, yeah, very physical. Uh, yeah, uh, I was always throwing myself all over the place um i really liked uh just i still like contact a lot um yeah. like and physicality and uh even though i'm like kind of like a like a small skinny dude um it was definitely like i was like oh fuck that i'll i'll be really physical and that'll make me more manly or something <laughs> for me i find that the collisions assuming that you know somebody else isn't getting hurt and i'm not getting hurt it's a release for me. I feel a dissipation of anxiety and almost like when I walk out into the world today, I feel the anticipation of collision, be it emotional, mm. societal or whatever. And then to have the actual collision on yeah, the ice a, is like relief. getting it over with. Yeah. That, oh, I, I feel exactly the same. I, um, after hockey, we'll get into the end of hockey because it's definitely interesting. Yeah. But after hockey, I did Taekwondo. Um, I had to leave hockey because, uh, I didn't have puberty forever. Mm. Um, and I was on like the varsity team as the Ooh. goalie and I like was playing with just the, I mean, they were like 18, but they were adult men. And I was, I like couldn't lift my goalie bag. I looked like I was 10 years old. Oh my and God. I was so good at, so good at hockey. And I was like, what the fuck? And I was like, so I just felt like I was this deformed, uh, yeah. I mean, I felt like uh, just life was just this unfair misery and I didn't know who I was anymore. So I left hockey because in Taekwondo, there's weight classes. Then I did competitive fighting mm-hmm. in, in Taekwondo. And I really like, I really like contact. I still do. Um, I, um, I don't know. There's just something when I'm when I'm really feeling dark. I always imagine myself like getting into a fight with somebody on the street. Mm-hmm. Often in like these fantastical, like I'm saving. Sure. You know, I don't know, a kid from being beat up by his dad or something right. like that. And I come in and I fix it. But I, what I really look forward to is the like, is the you know, if I like fall down afterwards and I can take a rest. (laughs) I always uh, picture myself picking on innocent people and then (laughs) somebody challenging me on it. No, obviously kidding. (laughs) I I fantasize about myself pushing an old person off the steps of the bus. Yeah. And then, uh, (laughs) but they were racist, like every old person. (laughs) So, uh, how, uh, deep did you get into Taekwondo? I was, uh, you know, super good at it. I like won. um, um, all these tournaments in New York. Uh, so did you get to black belt and stuff? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was, obs- I mean, yeah, I was obsessed with it. It was like this like safe place. I also hated that, though, too. Um, I just hate the pressure. You know, the ho- right. hockey, what I hated is the uh, the team. 
I felt so awkward. And the then, score. That's, that, that gives me anxiety. And the, is and letting just, my team down in as a goalie. Oh, it's the worst. And you're, times you're so small. Imagine you're this tiny little kid and all these like older boys are mad at you because you're like letting goals in and mm-hmm. you're mad at yourself and you want, want to die. And, uh, but you're also bored. If you look at the team's winning, you're bored. You're mm-hmm. over there being like, I'm just waiting and, uh, Eventually, my dad became the hockey coach. <laughs> really? Yeah. It was terrible. That was what I left. Um, that was the final straw. My dad, like, uh, retired early. Um, he had, like, a panic attack, I think. I don't know. Uh, that's what he said. Um, yeah. And uh, he's like, I'm Canadian. I can be a hockey coach. Uh, and then he did it, and he was, like, such a dick on the ice. He... Um, uh, so then I like immediately left. He would get out there and put the skates on during practice and running yeah, and stuff. And, yeah. He was just the worst. And then I, I remember one time I was like, like, um, give me an example of, of, well, the one time that like really got to me, he, uh, well, he would, he would be like watching tapes at home and like be like, oh, this is, and like no one cared or, mm-hmm. um, I mean, we had like a bad team. Um, everyone was lazy and he was thought he was this, like he was in a movie. He was um, going to Herb Brooks you into shape. Yes, exactly. He's a, he's like a, he has a lot of narcissistic personality traits um and uh, one time i was like he like was asking us to do something and i was like oh come on dad um i said that out loud and he was like never speak to me like that here it was very unlike my dad too so i was mm-hmm. really really shocked my dad's a very passive um sort of uh kind of bumbling he's he's like six four um mm-hmm. this like kind of gentle giant vibe uh, who ignores you. That's the big mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> or will like, uh, f- f- you know, s- just stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and so he like got like he, in coach mode and I got, I remember just like m- my, like my stomach just, I was so humiliated. Um, and, uh, for one of the many times in my life with him, I was like, in my head, I told myself, I was like, all right, we're done forever. <laughs> no. I've had a lot of those. Um, and was the conversation continued elsewhere? No, never. No, I mean, yes. no. That's not, not how. That's not how things were done in my in my family. Um, or in the, on the Upper West Side, probably. Yeah. No. It was like uh, I remember. I I spoke recently to my mom. I was like, "Did you know that I didn't have a good time in high school?" And she's like, "No." And I was like, "What the fuck did you think I was doing?" I was like, "I." was just like stuck in my room constantly, like learning how to use nunchucks just because I wanted to be good at anything. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I was obviously so miserable. I didn't even think it was a, I didn't know that it was something you could do to be like, hey, mom, I'm sad, right? right. Like I thought that that was just not She probably didn't thing. either. She probably didn't yeah, either. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my parents have so many limitations that I'm coming to uh become okay with my mom they sound like decent people just didn't have the tools they're not malicious uh my dad is definitely not malicious um he's just uh he just kind of i mean mostly is thinking about himself um and my mom has uh she has like anger and rage issues but Mm -hmm. she's getting a lot better actually um just now Mm -hmm. but that was a big part of my childhood is being yelled at um and uh I kind of feel like I raised myself a bit, um, I don't know, in my room with anime. <laughs> yeah. What were the, some of the favorites? Uh, with anime, it started with Dragon Ball Z. Um, let's see, you know, it's uh, people with hidden superpowers taking mm-hmm. on the world, being and punching everyone until, until everyone loves them. Um, <laughs> 
what what was your imagined superpower if you could have had one uh i really wanted to shoot energy balls i think that would be really great i remember i had one dream in which i did and i still remember it it like came from my fingertip it like a little ball of light and i was like oh my god it's happening um and it was it like a destructive energy ball it was a destructive energy ball um i mean i don't think i want to destroy anything i just like the idea that like you can harness this inner energy or whatever. And in Dragon Ball Z, there's often always these, like, it's like a kid will mm-hmm. have this, like, hidden power. Um, that's the kind of thing I'm into, obviously. Right. Um, and I still like that stuff. And then it became, like, uh, I mean, I love, I think anime is great. I always, um, I mean, it's so weird. It is so, so odd. And the learning curve for people that aren't into it is major because there's, like, uh, I mean, you have to basically be okay with, like, the sexualization of children. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just in every anime, there's, like, everyone's 15 years old or whatever and uh, all considered super hot. Um, just because, I don't know. It's a cr- I can't. I, the, the few anime things that I've watched, I can't get past the baby voices. Yeah, everything is, there's a lot, there's a big learning curve. They're, everyone's yelling, and uh, they have these, like, tiny little, like, yeah. everyone just sounds like that. Um, even in the, I mean, in the dub, I usually watch things in the dub, but when it's dubbed over, um, just because I like to be able to listen as I draw instead of having to read. Um, but, yeah, there's some really interesting stuff that happens in it, though. There's this, like... I mean, they're so much more willing to have just utter weirdness and uh, uncanniness. Um, Give me some examples of of things that maybe opened your mind or uh, where you saw yourself or who you wanted to be or some type of freedom. I was really into um, Naruto. It's like really big now. Um, But when I was younger, no one really... um, I didn't have any friends that liked um, anime. Um, I... uh, I would go to this, uh, like, it was this, like, bootleg um, DVD shop in Chinatown called Octopus's Garden, I think. Um, I don't know why it had that name. but uh, <laughs> and, um, and I would buy these, like, yeah, these, these, these fake DVDs. Um, and Naruto is this, okay, so his story is, um, uh, I think what I honestly liked about it was that, like, no one else was into it. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just a different world, different culture. Like I could feel like I could just be part of something else that I could fit into like a different, um, that I didn't belong here. Um, was there a relief in that it wasn't something that was competitive? Yeah. I mean, I, actually, um, hmm. I've, I've always noticed that, um, I'm a, I, I get like obsessive about as like a fan about certain things, but I don't like doing it in communities. Um, I've always, I mean, when I was uh, younger, it was, it was like Harry Potter was my, my thing. I listened to Harry Potter, audio, uh, Harry Potter audiobooks at, uh, every moment of the day for years and years and years and years. Um, like instead of music, that's what I would do, mm-hmm. but I never wanted to talk to anyone about Harry Potter because yes. I wanted it. To, it was something private to me and I didn't want them to like, you know, know more than me or like it more than me. I just like entering it in that realm, this like competitive realm, uh, felt unsafe to me. Um, and what was it about the Harry Potter world that was soothing? I don't know. Um, I mean, that's like a question about like Harry, why does everyone love Harry Potter? I mean, it has a very standard plot, right? They like round glasses. I just think they're cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think it's like, you know, the hidden power thing again. Yeah. Um, a person who uh, nobody cares about suddenly has um, 
everything you could ever want and a community of people um, and has purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, there, and there's justice in the world. And there's justice in the world. Uh, and a father figure, an old father figure. Um, Other than that, you couldn't relate to it at all. I don't know what else I liked about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but for some reason, I think also the fam- after a while, I think it was just the familiarity. Yeah. Um, no, like having it be something reliable, like a rhythm I could click into. Um, Cause, and I still listen to it. I still read it and listen to it. Um, I'm a big repetitive person. Mm-hmm. I repeat and repeat and repeat. I do the same thing every single day. I eat the same things every day. I don't like changing things up. I always thought of myself as like a kind of like a laid back person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am not. I, I'm, I can be laid back as long as I do exactly what I want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good way of putting it. And, uh, yeah, or I could, I could also be laid back if somebody else is in charge. Like, I'll, mm. I'll like, uh, yeah, I don't like to. So the I, unknown is anxiety inducing. Yeah, it's, yes. it's the worst. Um, and, uh, I, I, I realized that I, I'm really good at suffering. Like, I can suffer major amounts for a long period of time as long as I don't have to try to do anything to stop it. The trying is the hard part. Um, I, I, like, uh, for fear of failure? It's stopping it? I don't know. It's like the idea of like... Um, being faced with your powerlessness? I think the responsibility is what, it, mm. what is what gets me. That you're not going to handle it right? Yeah, or even that I'll have to participate. You know, like um, I'll think about like uh, when I'm driving and I have friends in the car, I don't want to crash because they'll die. But if I'm in the car and somebody else is driving, I'm like... I'm cool with dying because I don't have to do anything about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's how I used to feel being on a plane. Yeah, uh, I feel that too. I used to be terrified of flying. Now I am um, after my depression came down like a hammer um, several years, many years ago, whatever. Now I'm like, let's do this. <laughs> let's find the lowest rated airline <laughs> and let's get a, a seat right by the wing. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, on the, on the flight to, uh, I went to Vegas before here, um, there was turbulence and I was like, this is fun. And then there was one that was a little bit intense and I got frightened. I was frightened to die. And I was like, Oh, your therapy works. Let's do this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. So when did you feel like you began to find your voice artistically? Um, so I used to be a writer. That was my thing. I, I would write short stories, and I went to graduate school for writing short stories. And then after that, where'd you, where'd you go? I went to Sarah Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd write these during while I was there. I, I kind of thought I found my my voice. I was always trying to write. Um, I was kind of trying to reverse engineer other writers or other feelings that I liked, mm-hmm. and I hated it. Again, this is my whole life. I'm doing things obsessively that I hate. Uh, because I, it just, it didn't feel natural to me. I mean, I was just like forcing myself. I have a pretty low attention span. Um, I can't read very quickly. All these things, all these things I wanted to be. Um, I wanted to be like a writer who, uh, had the like biggest vocabulary, was like super smart, read every, everything and could just write these basically, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, classic style, uh, short stories. Um, and I was terrible at it. Uh, I mean, I'm like a relatively smart person with enough work. I could do a passable job. Um, but then eventually there was this one day where I was had like a workshop and I decided like, I'm just going to try to just write something short. And that makes me laugh. Um, this is before I was getting into comedy. So it comedy. finally went from what do they want to what do I want? Yeah, like I want to giggle. Um, and I did it and it happened so quickly, so easily. I wrote like three pieces, no effort, um, because I had a lot stored up, I guess. These like absurdist, uh, sort of magical realist, very short, 
uh, goofy pieces. I think that my artistic sensibility would be like something very dumb taken very seriously. I want like gen, I want like genuine emotion happening. Uh, while something utterly stupid you is going down. You must love uh, Christopher Guest's work. I do. I certainly do. Boy, very, very much. anybody has ever tapped into that, it, it, it oh, is well, him yeah. and the people he improvises with. Yeah. I, uh, it's, there's something just... Um, I just like finding like these like like I, I just like the idea when I'm watching something or, or consuming something the idea that you like can find something really really special and and real in the most unlikely stupidest place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like being reminded that I take myself too seriously. Yes, that's like my constant like uh, when I'm when I'm working on like a comic or when I used to write short stories it would always be like I would try to handicap myself. Mm-hmm. I'd give myself like this like dumb uh premise and be like because you're you're too you're taking this too seriously you silly boy now try to fix this now try to make this mean something and uh i don't know it works it works for me and comics um all comics are was uh my therapist was actually the one that started asked i mean suggested that i try drawing um and you were how old then I was 25 or something. So you've only 26. been drawing for for Well, I've been drawing my years. whole life, but I stopped. I was like, uh, drawing uh, can't make me famous so or successful or whatever. Right. Um, and uh, so I, I was like, I'll, I'll write. Not as if that's going to help. Like, uh, right. That's easy. Yeah. And um, I always thought that, that um, I mean, one of the big things is that I didn't want to draw comics because I hate drawing the same thing over and over again. But then I got an iPad and... Uh, it's a lot easier. <laughs> um, so you draw with your finger or a pen? With a pen, like an Apple pencil. Um, yeah. It's so fun. But yeah, she suggested, she was asking me to draw myself as a kid. She was trying to get me to empathize with myself. I mean, I was terrible out there when I first got there. I had like a basically, after graduate school. I love that you just said I was, I was terrible, terrible at therapy. <laughs> um, oh yeah, that God. was a slip. The I meta, know that you- <laughs> The meta of that, we could do a whole episode on what an MC Escher moment that is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I went into therapy. I was amazing at it. She was like A+. Plus. She she gave me my certificate. Now I'm good. Um, no. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I guess I forgot that that's you're supposed to be in therapy if you're if you're bad at it there's no way to be good at it right right um, but I got when I was there I was I mean I was totally totally uh would it be would it be fair that to say that another way of expressing it would be that it didn't feel fruitful in the beginning um it did feel fruitful it actually did. yeah so it's just would that you like say you were bad at it um I, I think and by the way I say that about myself uh in terms of meditating yeah, I, um, I always think of myself as I'm very bad at meditating. I can't do it. What I do is I, I sit in the shower. Um, I realize that I can't f- force myself to sit still. I, my big problem is that I'm obsessively consuming or making stuff. Uh, I always have like an audiobook on while I'm drawing or TV while I'm drawing or just a million things at once, texting. I'm, I, I, I like chain, I like binge distract myself with media. And so when I get in the shower, so I can't do meditation, but when I get in the shower, something to do, I sometimes I often listen to stuff in the shower. But mm-hmm. when I'm not, I'll sit in the shower and uh, for some reason, because um, I'm like kind of stuck there and it's warm, I get to like close my eyes and So it's like you force still. yourself to not have options. That's kind of the to. idea. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then I like poke my belly button and that's enough yeah. to do to make myself slow down. Um, wait, what were we talking about though? I had things. Uh, when you found your voice as a, yeah. as an artist. 
Oh, no, why I'm bad at therapy. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, uh, okay, well, what I've, so uh, after graduate school, I mean, I had this amazing time at the undergraduate school, and I was, like, writing this stuff, and I was like, oh, here it is. Like, I'm allowed to be funny, essentially. Um, I was always being silly, but I'm allowed to be, like, that can be something that I'm, that I'm doing. And then after I graduated, I, uh, I, like, didn't know what was next. I always had something that I thought was next. Um, and I was in this pretty bad relationship for six years, uh, not bad as in like uh, dramatic bad, just like it was just over Not after year two. And yeah. I would just sit at this counter and like wait for her to fall asleep at night so I could like watch TV and smoke cigarettes. Um, yeah, that happened for like four years. <laughs> <laughs> and I was losing it. I mean, um, you know, that's not a way to be present in your life. We were just pretending. Right. Um, and uh the avoidance of difficult conversations yeah and i am good at it Uh, uh corners it will paint us into in our lives i didn't even know but i didn't i didn't know it was happening i mean and then all of a sudden just one day basically all my um coping mechanisms all stop stop working all at once and i was just bereft i mean i I didn't know that I had depression. Um, I mean, I had, it was always burning there, but I would like distract myself or, um, or like go out with friends mm-hmm. or obsessively joke. I remember, um, I would go out with friends and I'd feel so angry that it would, the bar was too loud because like, uh, or that people weren't like willing to like just do bits constantly. Cause mm-hmm. I was like, that's why I'm fucking here. Like I need to feel, it was the only way for me to feel connected. To anything was like laughing. Right. Um, and so I'd, and I'd be, I'd go there with this like aggressive, uh, attitude towards my friends being like, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's, let's mm-hmm. be silly, which is not a very fun person to be around. Um, it, it's so funny when, when we don't realize our sense of humor is hostile and we wonder mm-hmm. why nobody's lighting, lightening up. <laughs> I know. I, yeah. And I would do this. I remember during my, very dark period i was at this um birthday party and i thought it was really fun to um uh when somebody's telling you something you just pretend you don't understand uh it can be anything and how uncomfortable it makes everything Mm -hmm. just like they'll be like yeah so i think i'm gonna go to this um other bar later and you just like stare at them in the face you're like uh so what and that's it right Mm -hmm. it's just an awful moment to be in and they're like what is happening can he not hear right um and i thought it was so funny <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh and i was doing it to the birthday girl i remember over and over again until she was my friend and, I, and she was like can you like stop like there's no joke here this is just you not- passive aggression yeah you're just being like i i thought it was i was being funny but actually what i was doing is just like i was imposing my will right um i was like uh, and I was the only one that was enjoying himself. Um, I was enjoying myself. But, right. um, uh, yeah, so around this time, I eventually, um, you know, I'd get up every morning and my first thought would be like, uh, you know, fuck everything. Um, I like could barely keep my eyes open at work. Um, By the way, I love your comic, the the thing of liquid that says fuck and, <laughs> yeah. the, and the cup that says everything. And yeah. It's pouring. I drew that during a very bad day. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, there's something about um, so, so returning the drawing was so profound for me. I went to therapy. I, uh, and then she was like, you should draw. And I, uh, and I said, uh, she mostly said just, I should draw myself. Um, and cause I spent like basically a year in therapy being shut down and, uh, 
dissociating and uh, absent. Later, when um, eventually I, the, that therapist uh, moved, which was very difficult for me because we got really close, um, she said that the first year of therapy, I don't know if she was supposed to say this kind of thing, but the first year of therapy with me was like really boring for her because <laughs> I would just be in this room uh, just slouched in my chair barely able to like make sentences but when but i loved going mm-hmm. um i loved the attention kind of or like uh that somebody gave a shit or something like that or mm-hmm. i'm not sure exactly but i even though it was it was you know it was very one one-sided this right. um me feeling present there but she asked me to she was always trying to get me to yeah talk about my childhood and i wanted to talk about like fantasy novels i was reading mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah we were at cross purposes um and she asked me to draw myself as a kid and i said no it felt like too intense Mm-hmm. draw myself as a kid um uh to, like draw that like little freaked out dude that i was um i always thought of myself when i was a kid as like just me it's just me now but short with me. really short legs yeah and uh which is such a coping mechanism yeah i have i still have a hard time um sympathizing with um you ever looked at a picture of yourself as a kid and talked to it i haven't talked to it but i've looked at it and i'm just this little buttercup you know, I'm this sweet angel and I, I still, I've had such a hard time just not thinking of myself as this like hardened, uh, adult, um, who should be able to handle somebody yelling at him all the time, um, or not paying attention to him or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But eventually I decided I was like, okay, I'll draw myself as an adult, which I'd never done before. Um, or I, I, when I was drawing my whole life, but I would like, I would just never draw myself felt like gross. felt like it felt kind of like vaguely like incestuous. Mm-hmm. Um, like looking your, like seeing yourself in the mirror when you're having sex, like right. <laughs> there's something just like, Ugh, like I know that that's what's happening and it's okay. God can't like this, but like, this isn't right. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but I tried, I like, I sat down, I drew like a million versions of my face well, like for one, looking for one that didn't make me squirm or just like repulsed. And eventually I, I, yeah, I found one and I got, and it was exciting. This is also the time when I started, um, antidepressants. Um, I took, I took Lexapro and I had a, a pretty bad reaction for the first, for like a month. Mm-hmm. And now I'm still on Lexapro and it works, uh, well um but for the month i was um i felt very weird i would be super up one day and then and then zero in the next day and it kind of like a pendulum sl- sort of slowed down mm-hmm. and i was documenting my f- my my feelings of like uh i did like a little diary of t- mm-hmm. to myself of like day one of lexapro day two and just drawing and i would go i went to this coffee shop and i just drew every single day constantly um and it was just flowing out of me there was something about looking at myself as a drawing that like allowed me to learn to sort of start sympathizing with myself or like fight the like lifelong reflex to not empathize with myself Mm. because he's there you know he's having i always wanted a journal and uh i i would would get too embarrassed with myself Mm -hmm. i would like have a lot of like parentheticals where it said like oh come on stop whining like or like just kidding you know like i was too i was shy with the person five seconds from now that would read it um (laughs) i always pictured it somebody after i died (laughs) no oh yeah obviously yes that was a big one like this is is gonna be my my record but for some reason with drawing i can um i can there's enough distance for me to start to like relate to the drawing and be okay with it just saying anything um and yeah, and then it just started flowing out of me. And now it's um uh 
I, yeah, I mean, it's really cool, the Instagram thing. Um, but I was just drawing because uh, it just makes me feel better. Like, I have a chronic stomach condition where I still have, like, super bad diarrhea a bunch. Mm-hmm. And it'll it'll trigger me really hard because there was a year where I didn't know what it was. And I'd have these, like, really bad incidents. Um, Maybe that's your superpower. Diarrhea. Yeah. <laughs> you can just push can... people away with explosive force. That's right. Um, you, all you need to do is a chance to get on your back. I have hidden power. <laughs> Just give me broccoli. I can't have broccoli. I can't have a ton of weird food. Uh, I just have like a bar of cheddar and I shoot all my energy out over the world. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, like recently even I had like uh, just like an upset stomach. I got so triggered. I was uh, I just was spiraling. I was like, you're you're decaying. You're um, sure. you're withering away. Uh, and I started drawing all those thoughts. And it's made me feel better. I mean, now I, now I mix it with like comedy writing, which I would have been doing before drawing also. And, um, cause comics are amazing format for joke telling. Um, especially on Instagram where you have the swiping, you get to like, right. you get to choose the rhythm that somebody's gonna, uh, like read your joke in. And now it's also become my job. So I've, so I've kind of, uh, kneecapped it a bit. Um, that's a big thing of mine, like take my passions and make them into my careers so that I'll, ruin them um how do you mean you you've kneecapped it well i kind of feel like the therapeutic element of it was more powerful when i was just doing it solely for myself i think that's so true of any art form yeah it's like once we make the jump to making our living from it all of these other considerations come in that really kind of uh, can poison it if if we're not diligent yeah and i think that um it's just that like so i've tried to start like having a separation between what i draw by hand and what i draw like on an ipad for people to look at mm-hmm. what i draw by hand can not be that it can be silly or whatever but doesn't have to have like a joke format doesn't have right. to have a punchline or anything um but yeah i i uh yesterday actually i had this weird spiral because i was on instagram i also do these like funny instagram stories mm-hmm. it's a part of a thing i do so i and i had this character i invented because i drove through the, the desert and i took a picture of myself next to a cactus uh and decided that this cactus's name was dewey because it's ironic because he's not dewey because right. anyway so then i was like he and i are writing a screenplay together and i was and this is something that i find you know i, I had this little opportunity to be like all right i get to come up with the screenplay when I'm hanging out, I just got to write this fake screenplay that a cactus is writing. And I got excited because that's something like a, a way I know it's something that's supposed to make me happy. Right. That kind of thing. Just there's there's no pressure. I do whatever I want. And then I just I kept like the formatting would be weird or like I'd make a spelling mistake and post it and then delete it. And then I'd like be like, oh, it's not that funny anymore. And then I just destroyed it. This like little spark of joy that I had became mm-hmm. so irritating and I became so frustrated and I'm not like a very angry person. Um, mm-hmm. And I suddenly felt all this rage uh, boiling up at something. I don't know. I mean, and uh, it was a very strange, I think it was that let me down that like this thing that's supposed to make me feel free and joyful. I like over, I like fondled it into like, terribleness because of like overworking it right and that just made me really sad so i I kind of wonder if that's um sometimes i wonder if that's what i'm doing with uh um with my comics but i hope not i don't think so entirely you know i i think it is normal to experience that and to question it and to have lulls uh you know i shared last week on the podcast i'm not sure when this will air but uh that i was beginning to get a feeling like 
there wasn't enough surprise in the episodes for me. I heard you say that, yeah. Yes. I was wondering about that, yeah. Yeah, and I had a conversation with uh, Akshay Nanavati, who who was a former guest on the podcast, and he was asking me how I was doing, and I always know that I need to talk when I don't want to talk. Yeah. I didn't even want to meet for lunch because I was in that place where I just wanted to kind of shut the world away and lick my wounds, even though I couldn't quite voice exactly what it it was that was bothering me but as you know the the gift of having a conversation with somebody who can be present and compassionate with you was he took in what i was saying and the answer came to me as i was talking to him which is that i haven't been really using my comedy muscle in terms of writing and that I missed the excitement of that since yeah. I don't do stand-up anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I came w- up with this idea of writing fictitious Yelp reviews around ridiculous things. Yeah, And I, I felt my energy begin to surge. And so right before I was coming here to to record with you, I was writing you know, these Yelp reviews, and I could just feel my passion returning for the podcast. And, and the joy, right? I'm yeah, sure, yeah. And I don't know if people are going to like it or hate it, but I, I, I know that it is healthy for me to not care. It's Yes, exactly. And um, I think that's a great—I also I think everyone's going to like it. Um, it's going to be great. But, but what, even if they don't like the jokes themselves, or right. it's not for them because uh, they're maybe they're— uh, Certain listeners aren't like comedy people and as much and as they such are a like tiny portion of the podcast. Yeah, if it was like I'm going to do a 45 minute thing and I don't care if they like it. <laughs> that, that, I think well, that would but the be... thing is, even if they don't like the thing itself or are like laughing or what, hysterically at it, um, certain listeners, what they'll like is how they'll feel the energy coming off of you. Right. They'll see, they'll feel you engaged um, uh, in uh, your like that part of the work, and that'll just be fun. I mean, that'll be exciting, and it'll probably improve the whole podcast in general. Right. Because I forget that they probably like me. Yeah, that's why I they're always... listening. I mean, they're listening because uh, there's a, there's a really good content, and there's uh, all these amazing voices, and the, there's no other. There aren't really other places. Well, there actually are other places to hear this kind of stuff. But what they're here for is that they like you. I mean, when I was listening, I like you, mm-hmm. uh, which is weird because I'm here now mm-hmm. and I don't like you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think so. Um, I started doing this, um, uh, this series that kind of in the same realm, mm-hmm. I was doing all this like mental health stuff. It was just like mental illness, mental health, depression, anxiety, super heavy stuff. And then I was like, I can't anymore. I, I didn't feel connected anymore to, or at a time to like what I was doing. Um, I was just kind of doing it because I thought I should, or that's what right. people wanted, or I was helping people, or because I get all these messages that are very flattering and nice mm-hmm. that people um, are happy about or feel mm-hmm. seen and stuff. But then I was like, this is not sustainable unless I can keep, unless I feel really engaged and excited. And so I made this, I decided to do like just a, just a pure comedic thing, which is my new character of detective man, mm-hmm. um, where he's essentially, it's just like, uh, it's like a parody of law and order and mm-hmm. hardwell detectives. Um, and it was so fun for me and it reinvigorated my interest in, in, in drawing in, in the page and everything. Um, and, but I thought that everyone would be like, stop stop what you're doing this is like we want the other stuff but what they did was is they liked that more and now like now i do like i got all these followers from that and now i went back to like my 
really dark stuff and they're like what is this and i'm like leave <laughs> i don't want you here it's like you're testing their love yeah <laughs> well oh that's a big thing for me when i get really uh when i get really well, i have depression anxiety and my therapist says i have ptsd so there's that and uh when i get really dark um i i get that hostile joke telling mm-hmm. tick and it'll often exist just in my like Instagram stories, uh, where I'll I'll just do like a weird series of um, uh, this one where I saw like a a tiny dead f- fetus bird, mm-hmm. and uh, I decided to take a picture of it, put googly eyes on it with Instagram, and like pretend it was still alive and Photoshop it onto me my shoulders and we're oh, like was it Sharon. Around. Oh, no, that's uh, Suzanne. Suzanne. Suzanne, yes. It's Suzanne. I also sold a lot of hats with uh, Suzanne drawing on it. So I did that because I was like, fuck the world. Like, I I hope everyone hates this or whatever, but I also want them to like it, right? I want to force them to like it. Right. Uh, It's it's this gross thing. Like to link it with your friend. I'm going to, what bar are you going to? Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And I was like, and I dare you not to like this gross thing or whatever. And then everyone liked it. And I was like, (laughs) I mean, some people were like, like, grossed out or whatever, but, um, uh, and then it turned into something like kind of good, but I did it because I wanted to sort of like stir the pot. I wanted to Im- feel in control of uh, something. Um, and I get like that in, in social situations when I'm, I'm a very introverted, shy person, but uh, when I'm like in social situations, mm-hmm. I'll be, I can talk a shitload, talk constantly. Just because I, I, it's like, I, if, if I'm going to feel uncomfortable, I'm going to decide how it looks, and uh, right. I'm going to steer this ship. Um, and I'm going to make sure that you don't love me conditionally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Even though I, that's what I'm doing. I have a big problem with unconditional love. I only, get, I only feel it from animals. Um, yes. But uh, I suspect it from anything except animals. Yeah. And yet, oh, that was with a, them, it's probably totally about the it's food. It's just the food. What's wrong with us? I, I, had this, this, I grew up with this cat. Me, Nina, and uh, and for some reason she was the only one I felt unconditional love for, uh, or, or from. Mm-hmm. And then she died. Oh, by the way, before ther- I went to therapy, my cat died. So I like left graduate school. Was in this bad relationship. All my p- coping mechanisms die, and my cat died. And my girlfriend at the time was like, um, "I'm dying, <laughs> I'm dying," and I'm like, "I don't care, you cat." Um, and no, she was like. Uh, I'm scared of Menina. I'm scared of Menina dying because I feel like you'll lose your mind. And she was absolutely right. I was like tethered to the world by like this wow. fluffy little cat, um, and I just felt like I was alone. I mean, I felt like I lost my family, and it was a cat, just one cat. Um, but it's such an important source yeah. of feeling. I I don't know what it was. I, I I'm like still getting over it. Um, yeah. I think I'm better now, but. I was, uh, like, unconsolable. I don't know. There was something maybe... It, yeah, it was just this unconditional thing. Like, she didn't give a shit about anything. And she was... The thing I like about her and a lot of cats, um, friendly cats especially, but friendly cats who are really grumpy at the same time. So they'll be, like, getting on your lap, but they'll be meowing at you. be like, oh, like... And so they're, like, kind of be this, like, loving shithead. Mm-hmm. And I just find them so funny oh, That's what hurt, hurt my dog Herbert was. And I think that made me love him even more. Yeah. It's just like, this is a great personality. It's being like, like I'm fucking sitting here, and but also like she didn't care if I like pulled her tail. She was yes. just this like we were just like always very mischievous. She was so loud she, every night. She'd keep me awake the whole night, and then like I don't know. We had a we had a good relationship, a really good friendship. Um, yeah, and maybe it's too because they bring out the unconditional love in us. 
because yes. we okay, got to yeah. put up with that those things. I think you're right. I think that that was a, a bunch of it is that like it was a place for me to put my love. Um, right. I, f- I found it very hard to be affectionate with my family. Um, I um, physically affectionate also. I always thought of myself as a very unphysically affectionate person because I never wanted to touch my family. I wanted I didn't like getting like kissed on the cheek or hugged or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but but then when I had my first like girlfriend, I find out that I'm this like um, hugely physical person. I like I'm always like uh, in in contact of, of some sort. Um, but it was just with my family. There was this like this like cutoff. Um, and uh, is it a fear that it wouldn't be fully reciprocated and and you would feel shorted in a way? I don't or that think you made so. them awkward. I think it was awkward. Yeah. I felt awkward. I felt like I I just genuinely felt like I wasn't really part of the family Mm -hmm. like i felt like my family was four distinct parts uh me my sister my dad and my mom we were just like four different people with an agreement um and uh especially me and then the three of them um Mm -hmm. and then my parents got divorced when i was 19 and it was shit went horribly uh and um and I was like, all right, yeah, of course. I mean, this is what's supposed to happen. Um, I didn't really mind the divorce, actually. I was like, yeah, let you guys should get divorced. Uh, this has been terrible forever, obviously. Everyone could tell. Um, but it was like afterwards, it just things were garbage. My dad was a dickhead. My mom uh, like included us in everything and told us all his worst uh, secrets. Um, mm. I was my mom's caretaker, for Ooh. sure. Ooh. My whole life, I've been like... I've been this like referee of our family. Um, you should see me when a, when a, when shit hits the fan and any argument with people, like people are yelling at each other. I get so calm, so focused, so alert. Mm-hmm. I'm like this sudden, suddenly this like articulate genius. Oh, yeah. I'm like, all right, guys, I'm gonna figure it out. I remember in college, my my one of my best friends and his girlfriend were like arguing, and uh, they like invited me to help. And I was this like referee and I, it should have been awkward, right? I mean, they were like yelling at each other and I was like, this is where I belong. Oh, it's a beautiful reprieve from the burden of your own needs. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, I have a big problem with my own needs. And if I'm the one like in charge of making things better, Mm -hmm. um, and I'm the wise one, you know, um, and, uh, I was out of my whole family as idiots, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're not really real. They're like these like cartoon characters and I'm the smart one and I have to help them even though I'm seven or something. Right. <laughs> so my mom and my sister used to yell at each other a lot and get crazy. Um, my mom would also yell at me, but they would like, I mostly wouldn't yell back, but they would like go at it. And I'd be there like this little man, uh, just being like, I think we should describe, I was like a therapist basically. Um, like describe your feelings. Let's uh, let's do this, guys. Um, <laughs> that was, hold this on, let so me get, fucking weird to imagine. You hold on one minute. Let me get my whoopee. Okay. <laughs> I thought this. of myself as this, like, yeah, this like super. I always, whenever I, I think I, I just like I was this genius, you know, this um, this emotional genius uh, who could fix everything. And it's such a double edged sword because on on the one hand, it's very flattering, but on the other super hand, flattering, yeah. it it is flattering. so. Uh, d- it, 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 it's so handicaps any growth we have yeah. because as I've learned that we then view the rest of the world as potentially overwhelming us with their needs and yeah. a lack of boundaries. Um, th- then you just described 
all my relationships (laughs) (laughs) until the the most recent one I'm in now. Um, I was, um, yeah, I've been a super codependent person in relationships, uh, always focusing on the other person's needs so that basically, so they'll leave me alone. Resentfully. Yeah. So they'll just leave. Yeah. Uh, and I realized how much of a, my therapist actually, she helped me realize, um, how controlling that is. So controlling. Right? Like, you don't let the other person declare their needs or have agency to be like, these are my, like, this is what I need. This is, and like, therefore you can do your own. You're just like, I'm going to satisfy all your needs so that we won't talk. Mm-hmm. Or like, so that like, I don't have to do anything with you. I'm just doing stuff with me and my thoughts um, and what I believe you to, that you're feeling. But for me, it felt like I was, if I didn't do that, I was this horrible person, right? Like, I, it was all the self-involved guilt loop. Um, And then I felt so alone. I mean, I couldn't describe my own needs. I didn't care about them. We we don't, when we're in that codependent state, we don't realize how badly we're listening. We think we're listening. Oh, yeah. But we don't realize the arrogance that we think we know what's best for them and that our job is to push them into doing what we think they should do and not live their own or life resenting or them for yeah. not doing and it. so much resentment and i felt i used my i used to feel like my world was so small um i would like live in this tiny little bubble um in a relationship but i'm also like so susceptible to that kind of behavior i have to really remind myself over and over again that like um first of all another person can be disappointed in you Right. That's fine. It's not annihilating. It's part of being an adult. It's you're, you're an adult. Right. And you can be, uh, because I don't, I I can be disappointed in people. I don't really care. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Like it'll go away. Other people are just like you. They have the same feelings. And we may come Um, back together and it may make us even stronger. And if you do something wrong, they're not going to kill you. Right. Right. When I was a kid, I would do tiny things wrong. My mom would like lose her mind. Right. So I think that's part of it. Um, and you're not so important that they're going to run and go tell everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I'd always felt in relationships, I, I think I chose people and I vaguely encouraged or, or allowed the behavior that the idea of the idea that, um, I was responsible for their life, you know, like that, um, if I hurt them or left them, they would just die. (laughs) Like this is, uh, I chose people that, um, told me that mm-hmm. and i sort of um i think passit- uh, tacitly uh encouraged that kind of stuff um or at least when they said it i wasn't like that's too much responsibility i was right. like oh okay i know this play I'll, <laughs> I'll accept this leading role yeah i was i'm also so bad with boundaries i would like set a boundary and then they'd break it and i'd be like all right mm-hmm. um i would this just forget time i it. really mean it this time i really mean it listen up also i would always try to um it infuriated me when someone didn't understand. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like you, um, you're in an argument, and the person is just not gonna. They're just not gonna understand, especially in the argument. They're not trying to understand. They're not trying to see your side in the matter. And it just made me crazy. But also, I mean, that was a big thing with my mom. I would be like, just why can't you? Like, what is what is what's what's happening? It felt like the world. I felt it felt very annihilating as a human being. I was like, you're telling me I'm not real, mm-hmm. um, but. The reality is, it's like you're in an argument. You guys are pissed at each other. No one's ready to learn anything right now. Right. Like, step away for a second. But I also felt like stepping away was abandoning someone. So I wouldn't step away. Um, and then I'd feel all this relief when the argument was done or I, uh, and yeah. Things got, yeah. What a great description of the insanity of, of, of codependence. And yeah appointing ourselves the caretaker for somebody's 
somebody's just, feelings. It's so hard to not see it when, when that's been our role, our, our whole lives. Yeah. And it just feels natural. It just feels it right. It just feels familiar, that, um, sickly familiar. It feels wrong not to do it. It yeah. feels like kind of evil. Mm -hmm. Um, to just like allow someone to feel bad because you know you can't help. Like you can say like I'm here for you, I, I, but not trying to solve the problem. You used to feel like this was a yeah like a betrayal instead of like the, it's it's absolutely not. They're you know they made it this far in life. They're gonna they've, they've you got to live your own life it's, and it's you can not your job. You can reflect someone's feelings back to them. You can do something if they need like you cook them food or mm -hmm. whatever they can't do at the time. But um, and also I'd choose people that um we're always in crisis and I was there to help basically so that I wouldn't have to deal with my own constant crisis. Mm. Uh, I have to pee. <laughs> pee away. Am I allowed to pee? No one ever you pees are, on the podcast. No, of course you're allowed to pee. I'm going to, I'm going to hit pause. Later now. <laughs> let's, uh, let's wrap things up with some, uh, some fears and loves. Sure. Does that sound good to you? Yeah. Okay. Here she comes. Gracie just exited. She probably just went to go check her email. What's her email address? She is... Uh, Mindspring. She's AOL. Oh, which, she's classic. Yeah, yeah she's classic. <laughs> she likes their graphics. Uh, you start it. Let's, let's do a couple of fears. All right. Uh, one of my big fears is... Um, I've always been terrified of this. It's uh, Okay, so people are sitting at a table, and uh, they're your friends, and you've just arrived alone, and you're trying to join the table... Or like that's the, the but there are no chairs, so mm -hmm. you have to get a chair and like ask people to move, and everyone's looking at you, and you're on the only one standing up, and they're all, they're all sitting. It just feels like social catastrophe and death, yes. and just basically the idea that I I need a chair, I need to fit in here for a second, <laughs> just makes me all systems go down, and uh, I'll I've like walked into a place seen that that was the case and left <laughs> i get it yeah it's like a physical representation of our biggest emotional fears yeah exactly yeah. um it's a perfect storm for me i have a fear that when a group of people goes out i'm gonna get the worst seat in terms of the people sitting around me people that i don't connect with yeah or You're at the end of the table with the boring people right <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly um yeah, I I hate that. Also, the I mean, it goes back to the same thing for me. The like being seen to have needs. If I if I'm like kind of craning my head to talk to somebody that I want to talk to, and they can see that I want to talk to them, um, that just feels uh, it feels too much. I feel like a burden and humiliated by it. <laughs> Give me another one. Another fear. Yeah. Okay. Um. Oh, one of my big fears is, so um, I used to have this, uh, I mean, I still do. I have this like chronic stomach condition, right? And occasionally um, I'll eat something that'll make my like intestines spasm and mm. um, it feels like I'm being stabbed in the stomach and I'll, uh, your blood pressure drops so you almost, so you can pass out. Oh my God. Um, and um, it happened to me five times one year once when, when all my... Um, uh, when the stomach condition started, uh, this is also the time when I started therapy. Mm -hmm. A lot of bad things happened that year. Um, and it happened, I'm scared of it happening in, in like a confined space where I can't shit it all out. Um, so it happened on a subway once and, uh, I was like, you get cold sweats, you're covered. It comes on like 
yeah. out of nowhere and I didn't ask for I didn't ask to sit down I didn't I I just stood there feeling like I was dying um I, I was passing out basically and I just I like doubled over kind of because I couldn't help it. it happened to me also in a car with my two fr- like best friends in the front seat and I didn't say a word this is before therapy wow. um my friends have also talked about how um after I started therapy and got on meds I like completely changed and opened up and uh they finally felt like they knew me, which was pretty tragic for me to hear right. that they didn't know me beforehand. But um, also, like, yeah, really exciting. But yeah, that's one of my fears. <laughs> um, I have a fear that I really am not less insecure than I was 15 years ago in the eyes of other people <laughs> and I just think I've gotten better but I'm still a bit of uh, you know once they leave they roll their eyes like wow that is one needy motherfucker well that's how I'm feeling now really? about you <laughs> <laughs> well then I'm relieved I, uh, on some level that, that yeah I'm surprised I'm at how right. insecure you are <laughs> well you can really tell when you're watching your facial expressions it's different with the voice um, no um, I yeah I absolutely understand how that feels um, I'll do another one uh, I, I fear that um, that I'm pretending to have all my problems um, oh my god that's a big one for me. Like I, uh, I have like imposter syndrome about my own depression, and uh, and I always say when I have that my I say my therapist says I have PTSD because I can't take ownership of it at all. It's like it's not I didn't say so. Mind your business. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a that's a hard one for me. I always get relieved when this dark way when um, when I have a really physical reaction to um, feelings when I have like a panic attack or. Uh, when I get like a terrible stomach ache because of anxiety, which I've been having um, on this trip because traveling makes me anxious. Um, yeah, I get relieved. I'm like, oh, you're a human being. These are this is real. <laughs> like, right. you're not just uh, pretending and uh, like a lazy, like you know, whiner. Right. Yeah. Let's do some loves. Um, I love uh, watching TV while I eat. That's a big one for me. Is there anything in particular? Well, um, when I was a kid, my mom would always be like, that's uh, it's like low class. Family <laughs> um, was real. My mom was really classist, I realized, uh, which I thought was just her. She's Italian, and I mm-hmm. thought it was just Italian, but it's not. It's um, And there's something very. So I'd come home from school, and I would uh, just like binge eat, basically. I'd eat, I remember, two Eggo waffles, two bowls of cereal, and two hamburger salami sandwiches because I thought as long as I was eating, I could watch TV and I wouldn't have to feel guilty about not doing my homework. Mm-hmm. But what happened is like you do that for fucking long enough, you fall asleep. Like I would, I'd like overeat, get paralyzed, fall asleep, wake up, not be hungry to eat dinner with my f- family and uh, then eventually do homework before bed. So now I just feel just so comforted. I think it's that I have everything that I need. I have my hands are busy, my mouth is busy and I'm watching something. I'm consuming in two different ways. That's also why I think that like drawing and while listening to something is fun. I need to be two, doing two things at yeah, once in order to feel pleasurable. Safe. Multitasking is pretty awesome. Yeah, it's good stuff. I love 
old guitars that have worn out spots on them and you know that there are just all kinds of stories around who the person was that played that guitar and picturing maybe them having gigs where they played it or the joy that they felt when they first owned that guitar. You like the history of it? Like yeah, imagining, imagining the history of it. And there's also... Um, kind of an intangible thing when when it's a well-made guitar that's really aged and is kind of beat up like the the, the one uh up there be, behind you hanging up there yeah um it's you know it's beat up as hell but it's uh, what the guitar players call a player and that it still sounds good even if it doesn't look good it sounds good so you can get it much much cheaper than if it was in, really in uh good Good shape. Uh, yeah, visual, uh, visually in good condition. And I just love guitars like that because if I knock it around and put a dent in it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, all my friends are, mu- I mean, most of my close friends are musicians and I'm so jealous of it. Uh, the like, uh, the trapped performer in me. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my, uh, my mom always said that I had a, uh, I didn't have an ear for music just like her. And I was like, all right, I'll take your word for that. <laughs> yes. we did, we did and you- I was, I was just do other things forever, but, um, maybe it seems so fun to be able to play music. Um, singing. I, I can play, uh, music and play guitar, but I'm, uh, kind of, well, I'm not kind of, I cannot sing. And yeah. I've just always been so envious of people that can sing i think i i can't sing either but i do like to uh to get myself back in my body i'll sing yeah i'll sing in the shower i'll make up songs i'll yeah. take like a melody and then i'll just i'll like see where the rhyming takes me and it's often about pooping as i've explained <laughs> pooping is like most of my life <laughs> give me uh give me one more love okay uh one more um mm, or two more okay two more um, I love when someone makes me food. Uh, Isn't that great? Yeah, it's just uh, I just feel really cared for when somebody makes. I I feel very I I I have to get over the guilt of <laughs> of somebody that like like uh, making me food. Also like the gendered guilt if it's a if it's a a, a partner of mine. Um, but there's something that just because. Um, the effort often I'll, I have a big issue with um, exhaustion mm-hmm. I'm always so I think because my mind is so active with like all this stuff I'm watching and listening to constantly and I don't mm-hmm. I don't give myself a break that I'll be super tired and then I'll have to eat and I have to cook all my food basically um, mm-hmm. because of my stomach thing um, and I'll be cooking and I'm desperately hungry and so tired mm-hmm. so the idea that somebody would make me food and like put care into it and bring it yes. to me and then I get to eat it and uh it's just something. It just makes me feel loved. Yes. I love when I get out of the shower and my girlfriend has made the bed. And oh, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, and she's really she she really cares how she does it. Yeah, and I feel like that's a representation of her caring about me, and. Huh. It just feels good. Plus, I don't like making the bed, even though I do make the bed when she's not there. Um, I just like that feeling of somebody somebody caring yeah. for me. Um, oh, so do I. One of the first times in my life these days I've been able to accept that people can care about me just because I'm me, not because I'm su- like supplying them with something that they need or I'm tricking them into liking me or whatever. They're just like, someone just cares about me. Yeah, That's uh, very exciting. Me, when I make the bed, I just, uh, it's only the top. I own, I, whatever is below, beneath, yeah. um, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't matter to me. <laughs> Give me one more love. 
Um, let's see. Oh, I love uh, I love when when you're really close to a friend and um, and you're, you're you're laughing a lot, but like you're so in sync or you've known each other for so long that you don't really have to say the whole joke or even say good jokes. It doesn't really matter because uh, you you're you're like um, sort of supplying all the un, unspoken mm-hmm. whatever joy. Um, so that you actually you kind of have to put very much effort into the jokes and you're just laughing so much anyway. I have that with a couple of friends where um, even if I don't know what he he's saying, like he it's, says a joke, the like the rhythm of the joke itself mm-hmm. just kills me just because it's like an act of me showing him that I love him. Right. Yeah. And, and the reminder that you have share a point of view. Yeah. And uh, the the joy of of that of of having a place and the and it the feels world. like that it feels yeah it feels like i have that i'm yeah that you have like a place of shelter a um, yeah. place where you belong um and history where you, that you've been there for a long time it's like an amazingly um profound reminder of connection and stuff yeah well what a beautiful beautiful one to end on uh alec people can find find you on instagram at alec with pen a-l-e-c with pen um, anything else that you'd like to uh, give a shout out for? We'll uh, put the links to all of this stuff under the show notes for, yeah. for the episode. Um, no, I don't. And you have tons of great so. T-shirts and other things yeah. that people can buy, and those are super uh, popular. Not surprising. Yes, although I, I'll, I'll get like uh, I'll feel weird that I'm asking people for money, and I'll just like stop making them <laughs> all I of a sudden. I mean, they're always available, but I'll stop making new ones, and then I'll run out of money and I'll panic um, because I just want everyone to think that I don't need anything from them. <laughs> <laughs> That's an even better moment to add that. <laughs> thanks, man. All right, thanks. So much fun talking to him, and if you haven't checked out his his stuff, really do. It's uh, it's just so fantastic. Uh, I want to tell you guys about a podcast. Uh, we mentioned it last week, and he's been a guest on the show here. I'm, I've been a guest on his show, The Jordan Harbinger Show. Uh, it, while it might have a slightly different approach to the same goal that this podcast does, which is personal growth, uh it is filled with practical advice uh, for not only personal growth, but but uh, professional growth as well. It's a Apple Top 50 podcast and uh, was among Apple's best of 2018. Uh, the Jordan Harbinger show covers topics like, uh, well, there's a guest who is an FBI hostage negotiator, and he teaches how to establish trust. Uh, there's neuroscientists, uh, Navy SEALs tell us how to develop resilience and mental toughness, uh, and amazing stories from people who have lived them, from crazy kidnapping stories and going undercover, uh, CIA agents, illusionists who can seemingly program our brains, basically anything that will help you upgrade your brain so you can become a high performer both at home and at work. I think you guys would uh, would really dig it. And uh, also, every episode has a worksheet, so you can make sure you're internalizing and applying what you learn from the guests. So you deserve to be extraordinary. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and start taking your life to the next level. And the URL for it is jordanharbinger.com slash iTunes. Although uh, I understand that will be changing shortly because iTunes is splitting into Apple Podcasts, Apple Music, and uh, Apple TV. But um, 
if you go to jordanharbinger.com, I'm sure you can f- get more info. And it's uh, J-O-R-D-A-N-H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R. Uh, today's episode is also sponsored by a new book by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark. You know them as the voices behind the hit podcast, My Favorite Murder. And they have a new uh, audiobook edition of their book, Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered. They're so fucking funny. Uh, you can hear it in their own voices and never-before-heard stories ranging from their struggles with depression, eating disorders, and addiction. They recount their biggest mistakes and deepest fears, reflecting on the events in their life uh, or lives that shaped them and and to the two that they are who are so funny, so fucking funny. And uh, in Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered, uh, Karen and Georgia focus on the importance of self-advocating and valuing personal safety over being, quote, nice or, quote, helpful. Such an important, important topic. Um, so check it out. Megan Mullally calls Stexy, Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered hilarious. What the fuck is the matter with me? Hilarious, honest, insightful, and clever as hell. And the audiobook includes sections recorded in front of a live audience, plus a special guest appearance by the one and only Paul Giamatti. Buy the audiobook edition of Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered wherever audiobooks are sold. And we're also sponsored by Veridesk, the world's leading standing desk solution, helping professionals maintain a healthy, active lifestyle in the office or at home. Veridesk converts any desk into a standing desk and is designed with durable, best-in-class materials that fit in any environment or workspace. With Veridesk, you can easily go from sitting to standing. Uh, You know, feeling good and having energy when you're working is so important. And not only your productivity, but your focus. Veridesk comes with a 30-day risk-free guarantee, and there's no assembly required, which is huge. And this is cool. They offer, uh, they cover shipping both ways. So if you don't dig it, man, they'll pick it up. What am I, a hippie? If you don't dig it, baby, if it ain't groovy to you. Veridesk is trusted by 98% of Fortune 500 companies and has over 14,000 five-star reviews from professionals all over the world. Stay focused on what matters with Veridesk. To learn more about Veridesk Standing Desk Solutions, visit veridesk.com slash workelevated. That's V-A-R-I-D-E-S-K dot com slash workelevated. Maximize your productivity at veridesk.com slash workelevated. I'm going to read a couple of uh, surveys before we get to that audio piece by uh, Dr. Alan Hendrickson. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a woman who calls herself Mofo. And this is such a good one about her anxiety. She writes, foregoing food and driving right past my own house just to avoid getting into a conversation with my neighbor who was out front. I have done that. Well, I guess I'll take the garbage cans out later because I fucking hate small talk. Uh, A woman who calls herself for the night is dark and full of terrors uh, about her sex addiction. She writes, listening from under the door to the guy I had an affair with having sex with someone else. About having fibromyalgia, my legs and back went to war, but their ghosts still haunt me. Wow, that is heavy. Thank you for sharing that. I know there's a lot of people out there that uh, deal with chronic pain issues, and it 
it sounds like a lot, a lot to deal with. Sending you some some love. This is an awful some moment filled out by Stacy's mom, and she writes, I was in a dark funk, just having a shit day. I went to my boyfriend's, and immediately he could tell something was wrong. He asked, what's wrong? You look so confused. He was so patient and kind while I was sad. He just listened and held me. I said, you shouldn't have to put up with my miserable moods. He said, well, if you're miserable, I'm miserable, and I really want to be miserable together with you for the rest of our lives. That made me laugh so hard until tears came to my eyes. Instantly, the sadness was gone, and then we cuddled together and took a nap. Thank you for that. Uh, I have one more survey, a really beautiful happy moment, and I'm going to read it after uh, this audio chapter by uh, Dr. Ellen Hendrickson. Uh, Her book is called How to Be Yourself, and uh, she's a clinical psychologist. She also hosts uh, a podcast called The Savvy Psychologist. And as someone who also has social anxiety, uh, she has created some really, really cool tools uh, based on cutting-edge science uh, and concrete tips for ways to help rise above it. And this chapter of her book is about making friends as an adult. And you'll hear not only why starting adult friendships can be challenging, but you can learn how to cultivate uh, your own relationship. And if you dig it, you can purchase her book, How to Be Yourself, wherever you get your books. And uh, so here is that chapter. Part five. All you have to be is kind. Chapter 16. The building blocks of beautiful friendships. They're not what you think. It is a luxury to be understood. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Maddie turned the key and opened the door to her apartment, where another long evening stretched before her. She felt deflated. She was a year into living in San Jose, having moved there from her tiny hometown in the Sierra Nevada. Jobs were scarce there, So when she got an offer to manage payroll for a shipping company in San Jose, she took the chance, even though she didn't know a soul in the city. Overall, the move had been a success. The only problem, according to Maddie, was that she had yet to make any friends. It's been a year, she said to me. Everyone at home said to give it a year, that it takes time to get to know people. But I don't think it's supposed to be this slow. I know I have some bad habits. After work, I mostly just stay in, get online, watch TV. I'm scared to put myself out there. Everyone said I was brave to move here, but now I'm wondering if it was stupid. She blinked back tears. Why can't I find people I can connect with, she said. It's embarrassing, but I even Googled how to make friends, and everything just says to go to meetups or join a book club or volunteer. Everything says to volunteer. I'm not an idiot. I know that stuff, and that's not it. I can find a book club. It's walking into the book club and trying to think of things to say for an hour that's hard. What am I supposed to say to these people? I run out of things to say after, hi, I'm Maddie. Nora, by contrast, knows lots of people. Nora is a stay-at-home mom with two kids and knows all the other moms by name from school, scouts, or soccer. She waves and says hi, exchanges small talk, and though the other moms are friendly, Nora notices they're a bit formal with her, unsure of how to respond. No one knows me, Nora says. I'm always the person who's the last to meet everyone. People always say, oh, I didn't realize you didn't know each other. 
I know a lot of people on a shallow acquaintance level, and I have a couple of close friends, but I'd like to branch out. I have lots of friends on Facebook, but I know that's not real. The only person I'd really be okay confiding in is my husband. I'm always the outsider, and I'm not sure exactly how that happens. I see people talking easily about random stuff, and it's such a mystery. I'm not sure how to get to that point. Even without social anxiety, making friends as an adult is hard. A meta-analysis of 177,000 participants in the prestigious journal Psychological Bulletin found that social circles expand until early adulthood and then shrink from there. Back in 2006, a large-scale survey found that more than half, 53% of Americans, didn't have any confidants who weren't family. A quarter of American adults, one in four, had no confidants at all. Over 10 years later, I'd be willing to bet the percentage has crept even higher. Mix social anxiety with other challenges, like Maddie's moving to a new city, the dispersion of graduation, getting clean or sober, going through an upheaval like divorce, or simply realizing you've had your nose to the grindstone so long that everyone has drifted away, and it can feel like you have to start from scratch, but have no idea how this game works. And you think that with so many people feeling isolated, like Maddie and Nora, everyone would be talking about it. But no one does. There's a stigma to admitting you have no friends, or that you're lonely. To make matters worse, if you look for advice on how to make friends, like Maddie, you usually end up with a list of places to meet people. But that's not what you're looking for. Meeting people is really different from making friends. One is an event, the other is a process. When Maddie searches for how to make friends, the answer she's looking for is not volunteer at an animal shelter. She's looking for the answer to, what do I do once we've shaken hands and exchanged names? Now what? Maddie and Nora, respectively, have two problems common in social anxiety. Either we feel like we don't know anyone, or we know enough people but don't feel close to them. Either way, we often think, what's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you, but social anxiety magically confers filters that are getting in your way. Sometimes it's our presumptions. We unconsciously create too stringent a filter and rule out too many people. It might be demographic. Oh, she's married or single. That's not going to work. It might be perception. Oh, she's so busy. That's not going to work. Or... She probably has a lot of friends already. That's not going to work. Or we might just have a low tolerance for ambiguity. If she's not 100% unambiguously welcoming, we rule her out. That's not going to work. Sometimes it's our expectations. Remember the perfectionism chapter? Those of us prone to social anxiety tend to look for an instant capital F friend. Without even realizing it, we're looking for a ready-made BFF with whom we feel connected right away. We wish we could walk into an event and walk out arm in arm with a new buddy or two, but on this planet, that rarely happens. Social anxiety tells us we should find friends instantly. The semantics are subtle, but telling. Social anxiety tells us to find a friend, to win someone over right away. But real friends must be made. Friendship is a process, not a ready-made discovery. But that's actually good news. Rather than searching for a diamond in the rough, it turns out the rough contains scores of potential friends. 
The raw stuff, the stardust that transforms into friends, is everywhere. Almost everyone is a candidate. Oddly, to make a friend, you don't need the right person. Instead, the person becomes right over time. So how does this work? If friends aren't found hunter-gatherer style, but instead are cultivated like advanced agriculture, how do we do this? Here's where to start. Is someone friendly to you? Great, they're in. This is the only bar. You're not friends yet, but you're friendly with each other. Some of your friend candidates will stay at this level, but three things will move others toward friendship. Repetition. The first is simply seeing someone over and over again. This seems obvious, but as recently as the late 1940s, it was thought that people made friends the Freudian way, that is, drawn together by a mystical intermingling of subconscious childhood memory. But three professors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, chief among them the pioneering social psychologist Leon Festinger, changed that in a fundamental way. In 1946, a tidal wave of World War II veterans enrolled at MIT. Seemingly overnight, some 3,000 of the university's 5,000 students were vets. Many, having put their education on hold to fight in the war, were at a different life stage than their fellow students. Many were married, some had kids, and MIT scrambled to accommodate them in the hastily constructed temporary housing community of Westgate West on the far western edge of campus. In total, 180 temporary apartments, two-story structures with front doors that opened to outdoor walkways like a Motel 6, were constructed from surplus military barracks. The sidewalks outside the buildings were unpaved, the accommodations bare bones. This being MIT, however, people got creative in order to improve their apartments. One father, a mechanical engineering major, created a device out of old washing machine parts that rocked his baby's crib and, to the dismay of the neighbors, thumped and thwacked into the night. But in addition to being creative, people were friendly too. And it was into this environment that Festinger and his colleagues strode with a research question. Who was friends with whom? They asked residents to name their three closest friends, curious to learn if they shared beliefs, interests, attitudes, or childhood experiences. The answer, the team discovered, was much less glamorous. Far from sharing fundamental commonalities, friends often shared nothing more than a hallway. Proximity was the biggest predictor of friendship. Next-door neighbors were most likely to be friends. People who lived on either end of the first floor at the foot of the stairwells were downright popular, presumably because everyone on the second floor had to pass by their apartment multiple times a day. At first, Festinger and his team thought proximity was the key. But proximity, they realized, was a proxy for something else, repetition. We tend to make friends with the people we see most often. Repeated contacts, like seeing your neighbors coming home with the kids, headed to the market, or on the way to mechanical engineering class, are the foundation of friendship. In 1957, just over 10 years after its construction, Westgate West was systematically emptied and demolished to create permanent housing. But the discovery the housing complex revealed lives on. Additional studies confirmed the effect, such as one where 44 state police trainees reported their best friends were those who fell closest to them in alphabetical order of seating. We can make friends with almost anyone. 
provided our potential friend is not mean-spirited, given time and repeated encounters, we can, and do, become friends with whoever's around. So how does this apply to Maddie? To have a shot at making friends, the specific activity is almost beside the point. It's less about what or where than about how often and whom. To have the best shot at friendship, she needs to see a steady drumbeat of the same faces, the same people, regularly. That rules out most come-and-go situations like the gym, but rules in specific gym classes where the same core people show up every week. It rules out one-time events or drop-in meetups where the people change constantly, but rules in, say, dog parks at a consistent time of day. Classes can work, but only if they're interactive, like tango or a writer's workshop, not lecture style. Forget about social media, bars, or clubs. Here, people bring the friends they already have and hang out together. The group is closed unless you're trying to pick someone up. When you're starting out, the best strategy is to join a ready-made community open to others. An ultimate frisbee team, a running group, a bike polo team, a choral group, community theater, a church group, and yes, a book club. In my case, preschool co-ops have twice jump-started my social life after cross-country moves. And then, keep showing up. Give any new social endeavor at least a season, or around three or four months, but longer is better. Lore has it that it takes six to eight conversations, not just high, before people consider each other a friend. But to start, remember your only criterion. Is this person nice to me? If they grunt and stare at their phone when you say hi, then no. But if you get a smile and some basic small talk, you have a candidate. They're not going to invite you over for dinner, yet. But don't stop saying hi simply because one conversation didn't lead to binge-watching old seasons of Louie together on your couch. Remember, friendship is fostered, not found. So, keep showing up. You may not be taken seriously until you've come back a few times. Especially if it's a public group, they probably get a lot of one-and-dones. Distinguish yourself by showing up again and again. Then, once you've established yourself, a well-kept secret is to take on a leadership role. Remember Chapter 8? Playing a role is a blessing for the shy among us because it requires less social improvising. You'll have a set of duties and a reason to connect with everyone, even if it's just to remind them about the holiday party or encourage them to donate to the food drive. After we discussed this, Maddie was equally fired up and frightened. She bought what I was saying about repetition, but was scared. She offered that three of her female co-workers often ate lunch together in the break room. Usually, Maddie would eat at her desk or in her car. The setup was too good to pass up. Same people, pretty much every day. They were cordial already, which again, is the only bar. How to approach the group was a question. Maddie dreaded what she called the high guys hover, so we decided to have her get to lunch first and let the group join around her. At first, Maddie felt awkward. She didn't know the context of anything they were talking about, but she stuck it out anyway, just listening, nodding, and to her surprise, laughing along a couple of times. She kept reminding herself, they're friendly, they're friendly. Before she actually sat at the table with them, Maddie realized, she had ruled them out as potential friends because two were older and one was an intern. She had thought she needed more commonality in a friend, someone her age with her background. Looking back, 
she also realized she had been dying for someone else to initiate, but they all thought she just wanted to keep to herself. It was basically a big, silent miscommunication on both sides. Maddie wasn't sure if joining lunch that first time had gone well or not, but later that night, she got a Facebook friend request from one of them. There's still a long way to go, and I'm not sure if we'll end up capital F friends or not, but this isn't a bad start, Maddie reported. Remember, if they're friendly, they're in. Think of everyone you're friendly with or could be friendly with. There. I bet you just broadened your social life substantially. Give them something to work with. Next comes disclosure. This is the second step for Maddie, but the first for people like Nora, who are stuck in limbo between acquaintances and friends. Like Nora, many of us have a collection of half-baked friendships and people we are friendly with, but we can't seem to get beyond that. Sometimes this is the result of the perfectionist rearing its head again. Nobody seems interested. Everyone is so busy with life and kids and everything, Nora says. Without really realizing it, Nora is waiting for someone to seem interested, meaning someone who unambiguously approaches her. Nora wants certainty. Without realizing it, she wants the potential friend to initiate interesting, easy conversation and invite her to do things. But because she's waiting for a friendship that materializes into clear, sharp focus, she inadvertently screens out everyone else. Despite having halfway their friends all around her, she thinks she has to start from scratch. How to take it to the next level. To jargonize it, we use disclosure, which simply means sharing what we think, do, and feel with others. This seems easy enough, but it's not intuitive. Folks susceptible to social anxiety don't often talk about themselves. We're polite and pleasant, but others often get the impression we're distant, formal, or otherwise keep the world at arm's length. Disclosure got a lot of press when the 36 questions to fall in love phenomenon made the rounds of the interweb. Much has been made about this list of questions, with online articles like, I asked a stranger these 36 questions to see if we'd fall in love, and we did, and an essay in the New York Times titled, To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. It sounded like a silver bullet for the lovelorn. But the real story is actually quite clinical, which makes it that much more amazing. More than 20 years ago, in 1997, psychologists Arthur and Elaine Aaron and a handful of colleagues from around the country published a paper with an innocuously dry title, The Experimental Generation of Interpersonal Closeness, a Procedure and Some Preliminary Findings. The procedure consisted of turning strangers into intimates in the laboratory by having them ask each other three sets of 12 questions. Each set became more probing and personal as they advanced. Set one included questions like, for what in your life do you feel most grateful? And do you have a secret hunch about how you will die? Set two goes a bit deeper. Is there something that you've dreamed of doing for a long time? Why haven't you done it? And how close and warm is your family? Do you feel your childhood was happier than most other people's? Set three ups the ante again with questions like, tell your partner what you like about them. Be very honest this time, saying things that you might not say to someone you've just met. And share a personal problem and ask your partner's advice on how he or she might handle it. Also, ask your partner to reflect back to you 
how you seem to be feeling about the problem you have chosen. But the protocol wasn't meant to make people fall in love. Instead, the 36 questions were simply meant to induce closeness and intimacy in a laboratory setting without the messiness of relationships that occur naturally in the wilds of humankind. The questions were meant to eliminate experimental variability, not induce wedding bells, though the study team got an inkling of the power of the 36 questions when two subjects who had met during the study pilot ended up getting married. Twenty years later, when the media caught wind of the questions, it treated them like they were a secret recipe for love. But the specific questions aren't magic. Instead, according to the researchers, it's the act of sustained, escalating, reciprocal, and personalistic disclosure that sparks liking the other person and, indeed, sparks them to like us. The 36 questions led to closeness through disclosure in Fast Forward. Usually what we do when we meet someone new is small talk. Small talk is important. It's the social niceties test track of conversation. But by definition, it stays on the surface. It's not about you. It's about other things. Traffic, the weather, that your coworker Darren is out sick and there must be something going around. Disclosure, however, is about you. Again, it means sharing bits of what you think and do and feel. Any topic is game. Even banal small talk can be tweaked to become a disclosure. For example, talking about the weather can be a disclosure. You're happy that it's getting cooler because fall is your favorite season. Or when you were younger, you used to love summer, but now you don't deal with the heat as well. Or when you were a kid, every time it rained, you and your brother would rescue all the worms that came out on the sidewalk and bring them home in a jar, much to the chagrin of your mother. There, you're still talking about the weather, but you're also offering up a little tidbit about yourself, which can serve as the launchpad of conversation. When I work with the Maddies and Noras of the world about disclosure, the next question is, inevitably, but what do I talk about? But that's not actually their question. Just like Maddie doesn't want to be told to volunteer, she doesn't need a list of possible topics. The real question is, how do I think through the paralyzing anxiety and come up with something that doesn't sound totally stupid? The answer is, yet again, to lower the bar. We think we have to be interesting, entertaining, or effortless, but that's too much pressure. Indeed, if you tell yourself you are not allowed to say anything totally stupid, you won't say anything. So start with what you're doing or thinking. Say hi, ask how they are, and share some tidbit about what you're doing, what you just did, what you're planning, or what you've been thinking about recently. It doesn't have to be smart, insightful, or articulate. It just has to be about you. Think of it this way. Remember when Facebook was new-ish? Circa 2007, Facebook prompted its users to update their status by asking, what are you doing right now? Circa 2009, it shifted to, what's on your mind? Start there. I'm fine, thanks. We're going to see my in-laws this weekend. Or, I'm fine, thanks. I've been mulling over whether or not to take adult piano lessons. Or, I'm fine, thanks. I've been craving barbecue for a few days. What's your favorite place around here? Whatever you say doesn't have to be earth-shattering. The only criterion is that it should reveal a tiny tidbit about you. I rode my bike here, and it was so much faster than sitting in traffic. I have to buy a birthday present for my niece, and I'm not sure what to get her. Ugh, I have a song that was playing at the gas station stuck in my head. 
This will feel wrong at first. It will feel like you're talking too much. It will feel selfish, like you're taking up too much space or making it about you. But this is only because you are comparing it to being reticent. Try it and see what happens. Sometimes you'll get a lame answer. Yeah, that's cool. Or, oh, really? And then, nothing. A conversational tumbleweed will roll by. But that's fine. A lot of conversations are lame. But here's the thing. A lame conversation doesn't mean you're lame. Other times, you'll get a relatively substantial answer. And then, you're off to the conversational races. Too many of us have been told we're too quiet or that we need to speak up more. We've heard it over and over again, and it always sounds like a critique, as if something is wrong with us. Thankfully, the introvert movement has validated and empowered all of us quiet types. But stretch. If someone starts a conversation with you, gently encourage yourself to disclose a little more than usual. It's tempting to respond to, do you have any siblings? With simply, yes, one younger brother. But stretch it to, Yes, one younger brother, but we were five years apart, so by the time I went to college, he was still in middle school, and every time I came home, I felt like I had to get to know him again. Now that we're both grown-ups, we're buddies. He's an ER doc in Minneapolis. Likewise, the answer to, where are you from, can shift from Houston to Houston, but I haven't lived there in 20 years, though I've gone back a couple times for the rodeo. Then, do something you're already good at. Listen. Turn your attention inside out. Ultimately, the goal of conversation is intimacy. Intimacy is a word that often has sexual overtones, like intimate apparel or worse, intimate dryness, but it doesn't have to. It comes from the Latin meaning inmost, as in sharing what is inmost, what you think and do and feel with others. The only note of caution is that disclosure is different from confession. In the 36 questions paper, the researchers define disclosure as escalating and reciprocal, meaning that telling someone about yourself should be a gradual give and take. Once, at a bridal shower, I met a friend of the bride. I introduced myself, shook her hand, and before I said another word, she told me she was pregnant through a sperm donor and that to prepare for the birth, her doula had told her to soak a thong in vitamin E oil and hike it up to her perineum so she wouldn't tear. I wasn't sure what to say to her for the rest of the shower. I kept squirming at the mental image of her oily wedgie. I'm no prude, but as a first conversation, her revelations were a tad overwhelming. More seriously, I once had a client who would disclose in her first conversations that she had been abused as a child and had twice been raped. It was too heavy, too fast, and she was crushed when people steered clear afterwards. She thought she was speaking her truth. But as we collaboratively decided, other people couldn't handle her full truth right away. There were other truths that made up who she was, and she could share those first, saving the deeper truths for later. As for Maddie, she realized book clubs might be easier if she gave people more to work with besides, Hi, I'm Maddie. At the first meeting, she told me, after she introduced herself in the opening go-around, she had remained silent and looked largely at the floor, equally hoping that someone would talk to her and that everyone would leave her alone. Turns out, a woman had approached her afterwards to see how she liked the group. Maddie had said, It was great, thanks, with a smile, but left it at that. The woman took Maddie's cue and said, Great, hope you'll join us again, and then moved on. Social anxiety makes us masters 
of ending conversations. It's easy. A certain tone of finality, saying hi but not stopping to chat, or simply not saying anything more sends the message that we don't want to talk. Ending conversation is another safety behavior. We're trying to save ourselves from the anxiety. But we trade the anxiety of the moment for loneliness in the long run. Maddie went back to the book club determined to try something new. She knew victory was not in how she felt. Instead, it was in her actions. Looking at people, disclosing, listening, and responding. The same woman approached and asked how she liked the book. So Maddie took a deep breath and gave her a little more to work with. It was great, thanks. I was actually surprised at how much I liked the book. I'm not usually a genre fiction fan. I usually go for big intergenerational sagas. A short chat ensued, plus an exchange of recommendations. It wasn't a deep heart-to-heart. The earth didn't shake, though Maddie's knees did. But to Maddie, it was the opening to a new world. To be sure, one conversation is a drop in the bucket. But disclosure by disclosure, conversation by conversation, over time and practice, the drops fill the bucket. And what about Nora? She decided to combine showing up with disclosure. The next day, she surprised her daughter by suggesting they hang out at the playground after school rather than heading straight home, a change in routine that rendered Nora momentarily unable to breathe. She spotted a few women she knew but felt overwhelmed by trying to join a group. Nora almost faked having to run an errand, looking for an excuse to leave. But then, her daughter asked Nora to push her on the swings, and another mom was there as well, pushing away. Nora said hi and blurted out that she was wondering at what age kids learn to pump on the swings. A conversation about developmental milestones left Nora in a sweat, and her nervous energy made her push her happily squealing daughter higher than ever before, but she had a long conversation. When I saw her next, she said Neil Armstrong's moon landing quote rang through her head for the rest of the afternoon. When you're first getting started, expect some false starts. We all get a little weird and desperate when we're lonely. If you're out of practice, you become less and less confident that you even know how to talk, much less form full sentences to which another human can respond. Worse, we also start interpreting everyone as threatening, every smile as scornful, every interaction as rejecting. But then we make it worse. We act as if the world is against us, a self-fulfilling prophecy called behavioral confirmation. If Maddie expects no one will talk to her, she won't say hello. If Nora expects the moms to be judgy instead of friendly, she'll make a beeline for home, not the playground. But don't base success on the other person's response. Don't base success on how nervous you feel. Base success only on what you do. Did you manage to share a little bit of yourself? Great. The first times are the hardest. Try again and try again soon, not weeks later. Keep the momentum going. It will get easier, I promise. Show them that you like them. The third part of crafting a friendship, besides repetition and disclosure, is showing others that you like them. People like those who like them. People also like those who take the initiative. In academic terms, it's called pro-social behavior. But more simply, it's showing someone that you're pleased to be around them. At its simplest, showing you like someone is being the first to say hi or lighting up with a smile when they say hi to you. Slightly more advanced 
is unnecessary conversation. I once had a colleague who would stop at every coworker's office in the morning to say hi, just saying hello. She always said, or just checking in. She called it doing the rounds. Her efforts were thoughtful and made me like her. Next is taking socializing out of the usual context and into another. For instance, parents from Nora's daughter's class, after connecting on the playground, may arrange a playdate—a change of context from schoolyard to home. After racking up those six to eight conversations hanging around after book club, Maddie may invite a book club buddy out for coffee—a change of context from the group to a duo. If you get invited to a get-together, someone from Tai Chi is having a birthday, a guy from your hip-hop class is having a Super Bowl party, go, even if just for a pop-in. People are touched when you show up to their events, and more important, it moves your friendship to another context and therefore. Another level. So approach. Be the first to say hi. Once your friendship has gelled in the original context, invite them on a hike, to a bookstore reading, to try the new ramen place in town. All these things are tough. Perfectionistic worry kicks in. We start worrying about the details. What if the hike is too hard for her? What if there's no parking near the bookstore and he gets mad at me? Maybe the ramen place will be sketchy. Indeed, taking the initiative is hard. But a helpful tool is to turn the tables. How would you feel if they invited you? Probably delighted. How would you feel if something went wrong? Probably understanding. Assume the same for them. Next, be specific. Rather than want to do something sometime, try. The kids have been bugging me about trying that new rock climbing place. Are you guys free this weekend? Or want to grab coffee on Monday? I'm free after one o'clock. Specification. Shows you're sincere. Finally, while almost everyone has adequate social skills, we are more likely to use them and reach out when we feel connected already, which isn't particularly useful if you're feeling lonely. So turn this on its head. To combat occasional waves of loneliness, a weekend with no plans, a particularly FOMO-inducing Instagram moment, use your feelings as a cue to take action. Whenever you feel lonesome, make social plans. Email a friend to meet up for a movie next weekend, or to look at the schedule for that bocce and beer group you've been meaning to join. It won't make company appear in the moment, but you'll have created something social to look forward to. To sum it all up, making friends consists mostly of overcoming inertia, both others and our own. Assuming someone is friendly to begin with, repetition, disclosure, and taking the initiative, hammer out a solid friendship. That will stand the test of time. Forget everything you know about being popular. Illinois, mid 1990s. Dr. Jennifer Parkhurst, a psychologist at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, was standing in front of an audience most others wouldn't dare to face. No, not angry mobsters or rowdy hooligans. Instead, it was a classroom full of middle schoolers. That day, classroom by classroom. Dr. Parkhurst and her graduate student Andrea Hotmire were reporting the results of their data collection for a study on popularity to their seventh and eighth grade subjects, checking in much as a congressional representative would do for her constituents. As Dr. Parkhurst stood in front of the class, braces flashed back at her. Faces studded with pimples betrayed raging hormones. A mix of awkwardness, angst, and aspirational sophistication. Emanated from the rows of Gerbaud jeans and Reebok pumps, 
Parkhurst thanked the whole class for their participation and began her report. So this is what we found out. In your class, the most popular kids are kind, cooperative, and trustworthy, and they don't start fights. A murmur rippled through the classroom. A girl in a pink t-shirt raised her hand. That's not true, she said. Popular kids are not friendly and nice. They're mean and stuck up. Emboldened, other hands shot up. Popular kids do start fights. They're not kind or cooperative. They're mean. Parkhurst was puzzled. But what I just said was based on the answers you gave us, she said. Pink t-shirt girl crossed her arms. Then everyone who took your survey must have lied. Yeah, echoed the class. Parkhurst thought for a moment. To be sure, she added, do you like these kids? What roared back was definitive. No, we can't stand them. The kids couldn't have known it, but in that moment, they upended decades of research methodology. Back on campus, Parkhurst and Hopmeyer, who is now a researcher at Occidental College, pondered what the kids had said. The researchers had used a well-established method to measure popularity. Each kid got a list of others in their grade. Students were asked to circle the names of the three kids they liked best and the three kids they liked least. Then they were asked to do the same for those who are kind, someone you can trust, cooperates, starts fights, easy to push around, and can't take teasing. It was a simple tally. You were popular if you got lots of like most votes and few like least votes. You were unpopular if you got lots of like least votes and few like most votes. Easy peasy. But in the face of the kids' feedback, Parkhurst and Hopmeyer reconsidered how to measure popularity. Maybe popularity wasn't just a tally of likes and dislikes. They did another study, this time with one simple tweak. They added popular to the list. Then they crunched the numbers again. What they found changed the game. With the new method, being chosen as popular didn't actually mean a kid was well-liked. It meant they were dominant. The kids who were pegged as popular did get lots of likes, but they also got many dislikes. These alpha dogs and queen bees were liked by some, but mostly by other high-status kids. With others, they racked up the eye rolls. It's easy to mistake being dominant for being liked, because dominant kids get a lot of attention. Their visibility is high. The shy among us despair, thinking, I'll never be able to do that, or that's not me. But you don't need to be someone you're not. You don't need to own the room to be liked. You don't need to be a big shot, alpha, or self-important. True, honest, by-the-numbers popularity, as Parkhurst and her colleagues discovered, didn't come from commanding attention or gaining deference. It didn't even come from having the most confidence. Instead, the kids with the most like-most votes and the fewest like-least votes were those who were also rated as the package deal of kind, cooperative, and trustworthy. Dominance, it turns out, equaled perceived popularity. Warm-heartedness equaled actual popularity. This phenomenon continues into adulthood. An oft-cited study found that in first impressions of others, we prioritize warmth over anything else, which is defined as, you guessed it, kindness and trustworthiness. It's startling then to realize that the shouts and whispers of the inner critic are mostly about competence and confidence. We worry we'll do something stupid, look weird, seem incompetent. We work hard to increase our competence 
and confidence, but we're barking up the wrong tree. Competence and confidence aren't what others are hoping for in a friend. They're hoping for warmth. Dr. David Moscovich puts it this way. If you try to be warm and friendly and curious, then everything else, the blemishes and foibles and awkward behaviors all of us have simply because we're human, becomes much less important to the other person because we're connecting with them. And that's what matters, connection, which is built on warmth and trust. So keep showing up. Share what you think and feel and do. Show others that you like them. These are the building blocks of beautiful friendships. Well, I hope you like that. Uh, She's awesome, and I hope to get her back on the podcast. Uh, Finally, this is a happy moment by a woman who calls herself Bird Xanax. I don't even know what that means, but I love it. And she writes, I recently had my first session of EMDR with my therapist, who I've been seeing for about eight months. I deal with chronic pain, thought to be psychosomatic, depression, anxiety, and dissociation. I can say confidently it was one of the most unbelievable moments of my life. During the session, my eyes got so tense I could hardly hold them open. My mouth felt like it it had been sewn shut. My legs and arms were so numb and tingling, I couldn't feel my legs were curled and lifted off the ground. If I could describe it metaphorically, it would be that the inside of my body felt like a surge of electricity to a fluorescent light, sputtering and paralyzing. My wrists felt like they were made of cement. It was after that therapy that we realized how severe my PTSD and dissociation actually are. Now to the happy part, floating around my stepmom's pool a few days later. We have these big pool floats the size of a full-size bed. I slid onto it trying to get the least amount of water on the float with me as possible. I was mildly successful. As I started floating around, all I could do was stare up at the sky. It was the beginning of the summer big billowing white clouds overhead. I would watch them dissipate at the very top. I felt like I was looking at the tops of mountains, like there was a whole world up there. I would watch birds fly overhead and land in the little diamonds of the chain-link fence perfectly. I found myself feeling so light. I found a comfortable spot right away on the pool float, only moving my head side to side with the sigh of content and peace every now and then. I remember not feeling the invisible pressure of what time it was, things I had to do, what people were doing inside, etc. I remember thinking, this is what it feels like to be at peace. There's something about laying on top of water at the same level as the ground with only the big blue sky above you, absolutely freeing. Even though I'm pretty scared about the reality and severity of my trauma, that little moment was worth it all, and I have renewed hope going forward. So beautiful. So beautiful. And I kind of had that moment too, not as, as uh, I think, as intense and related to trauma necessarily as yours. But when I was floating on the Adriatic Sea in Croatia last year, I hit a level of letting go that I've not experienced very often. And I think that's when I really began to realize what recharging my battery felt like. And I'd always thought, oh, my battery's not getting drained. But uh, as I've shared the last couple of weeks on the podcast, it it is. And uh, I'm finding ways for myself to not only 
kind of renew my passion for doing the podcast, but to take breaks now and then, despite the guilty part of my brain telling me I'm, I'm failing everybody. And thank you, by the way, for your support of emails and uh, tweets and stuff about, about that. Um, anyway, I hope you liked today's episode. And if you're out there and you're struggling, just never forget that you're not alone. There's so many of us that feel the same things inside. Our external circumstances might differ, but we are all connected and we are all so much alike. And asking for help is the best thing I ever did. And I'm glad I did it because I got to stick around and experience some really cool shit. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.